I'm Carl Ulrich, Vice Dean of Entrepreneurship and Innovation at the Wharton School, and this is Launchpad, where I talk to successful entrepreneurs about the secrets to launching and growing their startups. I'm very happy to welcome to the show my next guest, Christopher Molero, who's the co-founder and CEO of Neuroflow. Chris, thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me, Carl. And I'm also going to point out that Chris is is our student, just a recent graduate from this last spring, and is uh, won one of our major prizes in our in what's effectively our business plan competition called the Startup Challenge, won the Innovation Award. So congratulations uh, on thank that. Thank you very much. It's always fun to to check back in a few months later and and see if it was just a school project or if it's the real thing. A, a little bit more. Yeah, a little bit more. Little bit more. Good. So let's let's get right into it. I'm going to point our listeners to your website. It's it's Neuroflow Solutions. Solution.com, NeuroflowSolution.com. All right, Chris, give us the elevator pitch for Neuroflow. Great. I mean, uh, today, mental health, uh, the way we understand our mind and our brain is largely subjective. Uh, it's patient self-reporting. I served in the military, coming back home from overseas. Uh, they gauged if you were at risk for PTSD, as an example, uh, by a, a survey. Just a, on a scale mm -hmm. of 1 to 10, how do you Do feel? you have PTSD? Exactly, yeah. <laughs> right. Um, but what we know is that our minds are connected to our body. So when you get stressed or you're relaxed, that physiologically manifests itself in a, it turns out, a very precise and consistent way. Uh, so we've done uh, some research here at University of Pennsylvania in the Wharton Behavioral Lab uh, where we can correlate your physiological symptoms uh, to mental states, emotional states. So we measure stress, relaxation, and engagement so that a, a mental health professional can use that in the clinical setting. Mm -hmm. Tell us the most common the most common use case right now. I mean, you're just getting started, but right now, right. what's the most common use case? So uh, right now, we're being used in clinics. Mm -hmm. uh, we're in our beta right now, mm -hmm. where um, clinics are treating either anxiety, phobias, PTSD, with interventions such as exposure therapy or... Um, a mindfulness therapy. Okay, so yeah. let's say that I suffer from from anxiety, yeah. and I'm in a I'm, I see a behavioral health provider. How how would the Neuroflow solution be used? Right. So we're used in conjunction with that therapy. Mm -hmm. So if I, they put me through exposure therapy, the goal of exposure therapy is meant to trigger my symptoms, so I know how they feel. Ouch. Right. It's yeah. not a very comfortable situation. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but they don't really know if they're triggering it right or if I'm being sustained at yeah. that level. And they're supposed to train you to desensitize yourself. Yeah. Right now, they, they don't have any way to measure that. So yeah. our tool is able to measure that in real time. Yeah, in real time over an extended time period, not just in the office, correct? Not just in the clinics, in the clinic. So it, we leave that up to the clinic if they okay. want to. The wearables that we tie in with are Bluetooth. So that. It's very possible that you could do this at home and outside of the clinic, um, but it's just if they want to invest and, and buy those extra wearables so that they could take it. I home. see, but yeah. I, I didn't. I didn't mean to answer my own question. I meant you for you to answer. So just tell us the. Just t tell us a little bit more about how the solution actually works. So it's administered more typically in a clinic. Maybe yes. walk us through exactly how the solution's administered. Sure. Yeah. So I I go see a clinician, and they. Uh, they start putting me through a certain intervention, a mm -hmm. mindfulness therapy or mm -hmm. exposure therapy. Put the wearables on. Again, this is designed so it doesn't interrupt a workflow. It's literally turn it on and you're off to the races. And the wearable, what is it that the, that's being measured? 
Right. So uh, it's heart rate, mm-hmm. heart rate variability, and your EEGs. Mm-hmm. So it's a four electrode EEG headset that we use um, that sends this data to the cloud where our algorithms uh, do that magic and calculate those emotional states. And it visualizes in real time on the uh, user data, on the uh, user platform, your stress and relaxation um, measures. So in real time, every time I talk about that time I came home from Iraq, you could see my stress spike. Mm -hmm. And now we can measure that and we could track the progress over time. And what we've been finding is that it's helping with patient engagement. We live it in the I want it now society. I go to one therapy session, I want to be better. Right. And that's not the way the world works, Mm -hmm. especially the medical world. Mm -hmm. And as a result, patient dropout rate is significant. Yeah. 70% of patients drop Mm -hmm. out before they're a third of the way done through with their therapies. Mm -hmm. What we can do is help keep them motivated, engaged, show that incremental improvement. And it leads to better outcomes. From a dollar and cents standpoint, any time a patient's not dropping out, that's not lost revenue for that mm-hmm. cl- clinic. Mm-hmm. Okay, and and I want to just drill down one more level on yep. the solution. So so you've got you're measuring three things: heart rate, heart rate variability, and then an EEG measurement from yes. four electrodes. And if I understood what you said, the clinician typically is not able to make a direct interpretation of those three variables. Instead, you do some al- you apply some algorithm in order to u- produce some more useful metrics that, and you mentioned one, I think, which was stress. Um, it, did I, did right. I understand that right? right? I mean, they're not, I mean, that's the whole point, is that they couldn't, I mean, otherwise they'd just put a heart rate monitor on you and and they, they, they'd be off to the races. 100%. Yeah, okay, so you're, you're doing some analysis of those three sensors, right. sent the data from those three sensors mm-hmm. in order to produce a set of metrics that are clinically useful. Right. Yeah, and what are those clinically useful metrics typically? Or just give me some examples. So stress, you said, was Stress, one. Yeah. relaxation. Relaxation. And engagement. Okay. We're working on a focus metric right now, okay. which will incorporate. I mean, if you think of EEG, if you're yeah. familiar, if you've ever done a sleep study, yeah. it takes 45 minutes to set it up. It's a lot of messy gels. Yeah. And the output, you have to be a certified right. EEG technician right. to understand it. Right. We've designed it so you could use this like non-invasive wearable. Yeah. And the algorithms combine all those messy yeah. data sets into an easy to Got understand it. relaxation. Yeah. Awesome. All right. So that's that's that sounds really cool. Where uh, take us back to the origin story. Where did it come from? Oh boy. So I was uh <laughs> um I was a student at Wharton. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was in a fellowship called the Insight Fellowship, mm-hmm. which is a technology fellowship and it's school agnostic but graduate level. And Adam Pardis, who's now my co-founder, mm-hmm. was also in the fellowship. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, and yeah. we uh, we submitted a. Was he also at Wharton? No, he was okay. uh, in Penn all right. Engineering. All right, all yeah, right. Yeah. Oh, but he was at Penn. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So just just coincidence, the two of you had that had the fellowship yeah. together. Okay. And uh, the Y Prize. Yeah. Uh, came out, uh, and we submitted a proposal for the Y Prize. Yeah. So the Y Prize, uh, the Y Prize is a campus-based, a Penn-based competition in which students are given an assumed piece of technology and right. typically have to come up with a, a business application. Right. Okay. Was this the technology? 
it ends. It was at first. And oh we, no, kidding! I we didn't know that. We pivoted away yeah. from that technology. Yeah. All right. So so yeah. So so it was a different technology. Yeah. That 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 the Y Prize asked you to. That's the problem, by the way, with the so-called technology push. Right. Is it's sometimes not the right answer. Right. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, and we learned that in the course of the next year when we yeah. Were so walk, walk us through that. It's super interesting. So let me just make sure our listeners get the point. The Y Prize. It, it's a nice thing. It really is. But its its primary goal is to take university research and find a commercial application. Right. So you're basically starting with the hammer. And the question right. is, is there a nail out there? Right. Yeah, and and unfortunately, if you have a nail to be to be pounded, you just want a hammer. You, right. you know, so so it, that if you start with the problem uh, and look for the solution, I call that a pull. It's being pulled from mm-hmm. user needs. If you start with solution, look for a solution or look for an application. That's called a push. You're right. starting with the solution. Looking. So you started the Y price is fundamentally a push. You start with the the technology, right? Yeah, and and the technology of essentially it was an MRI technology, yeah, imaging technology, yeah. and so it did access the brain, yeah. And I knew, you know, from my military days that mental health was subjective. I mean, yeah. So that's the problem you were interested in, right? Effectively, yeah. I mean, yeah. twenty veterans a day commit suicide on average, so wow. it's a personal problem, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, and so we tried to do it, and by the way, we lost miserably in that white prize. Thing. Yeah. I mean, it was we submitted it like the night of, I think, after yeah. a week of trying yeah. to like pull all nighters. But we thought we had something. I mean, what we did find is that the problem was real. Yeah, that's and the market awesome. opportunity yeah. was real. Yeah. Okay. So so you pivoted away from using MRI, and obviously that was a, you know that that's a that's a that's using a a a a caterpillar tractor mm-hmm. instead of a hammer, right? right? So right, right, it, right. it might have too much complexity for the problem you're trying to solve. So how did you find the eventual solution or at least get a, get some insights about how you could solve the problem? Yeah. Well, we were looking for a problem or a solution that could be applied in the clinical setting. Mm-hmm. I mean, when you go see a psychologist or a therapist, you're not going to, there's not an MRI machine there. Um, so we needed something that was mobile and you could use at home and just in the typical, right. you know, therapist office um, and through a lot of research with the MRI we knew that your brains did change when you were stressed or mm-hmm. had PTSD but there was other ways to measure that and that's where we came up with the EEG and, and the heart rate monitor okay so you actually had to do in some sense some scientific development around the technology that was what the f- so the first year was a combination of the development yeah. and the market research. Yeah. yeah. It, but but maybe tell me a little bit about the team. So Adam is uh, an engineering student. You're a business student. Um, neither of you is a neuroscientist. Right. So uh, right. how did you yeah. fill in that gap? Yeah. Uh, that's a great question. Yeah. Um, so it's, I mean, Neuroflow is very fortunate to have mm-hmm. a great team right now we have eight full-time employees mm-hmm. three interns uh one of our advisors is dr michael platt who is a, oh wow yeah, yeah. Who is, if those who who don't know him have a triple appointment he's in the neuroscience department clinical psychology and he's a wharton marketing professor yeah go figure yeah right he's <laughs> the director of the wharton neuroscience initiative yeah and wharton does have a neuroscience initiative yeah. which is pretty cool uh, Actually, just as a side, yeah. it's very scary because they're studying how to get you to buy more stuff, basically. <laughs> right. Uh, not not really. It's I. It, I mean, <laughs> let me de- let me defend it a little bit more as a Wharton <laughs> professor and as an administrator. It, they're looking at the basic science of of of, of desire and how mm-hmm. people make decisions, right. and there are applications in in consumer marketing, but it's not like they're actually trying to. Uh, and yeah. in more of their defense, yeah. they were pivotal in a lot of our research. Yeah. Um, they Amazing. really st- yeah. stood up when we had funding. We had the IRB approved, and we were having tra- trouble getting traction in the broader pen community. Mm-hmm. 
Dr. Platt and the Neuroscience Initiative stood up and goes like, this is a no-brainer um, yeah. and, and helped us out. Yeah, it actually is a brainer. <laughs> <laughs> that is true, yeah. <laughs> All right, so that's that's uh, that's that's a great great story. So how did you uh, actually on the subject of IRB? That's that's uh, slang or it's an acronym, Institutional Review Board. It's, the, it's what universities go through to verify that we aren't uh, running rogue experiments on humans, and right, so right. it's essentially a regulatory body within the university that it, that everything has to go through. But it does raise the question of regulation more generally. So mm -hmm. um, what? What are you able to claim, and what are the FDA issues around this this uh, this therapy? Great, yeah. great question. Yeah. Um, so we're right now. Norflow is a clinical decision support tool. Mm -hmm. Look, I, I every every time I get on the phone with a clinical psychologist or a therapist, I first thank them for what they're doing because they're almost doing the impossible a lot yeah. of times, and they're on the front lines making a difference. Right now, they're in large part not using any data. So I'm not there to replace them. I want to enhance the practice and enhance their ability to communicate mm -hmm. what's going on with the patients. Mm -hmm. And so in that sense, we're a, a decision support tool that's just measuring this stuff. We're, n we're not claiming to diagnose these illnesses or treat these illnesses. It's there to almost the, a blood pressure measurement for your mental state, if yeah. you will. Yeah, except I, let me just push you on that a little bit. I, I doubt the FDA has a variable called stress mm. that's a clinically valid Measurement. So you're actually constructing some new variables for right. this provider, and but as long as it's just advisory, as long as it's just data right. to the to the clinician, there's no re approvals required. And we went through. So there is this uh, claim called the de decision support tool. Yeah. Um, and we went through the official process to get um, to get labeled that by the FDA. Oh, I see. Yeah. So they have a special category for decision support. Right. Yeah. And essentially, when you get if you get in that category, uh, they exempt you from having to go through the 510K process yeah. and everything. Yeah, so. which is more a safety-related, uh, I, I suppose, right. safety and efficacy. Right. That's both, yeah. So yeah. If, if we claim to be able to treat these things, right. diseases, then we would have to have gone through that process. Right, right. So. Yeah, interesting. And, I, and I'm guessing that the FDA actually, I, I mean, this is just a guess, but if we think about the about the therapy itself, Many of the many of those therapies have not been through clinical trials, right? I mean, they're 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 in some ways we're we're guessing about some of these therapies. Is that right or or not? With, uh, like With well, let's say PTSD and and what clinicians are being used. It's not as if those therapies go through FDA approval typically, or if, do they? Well, it's, yeah. if if the if there's a technology or measurement tool right. related to them, then they go through. But FDA. not if it's simply talking about it, or 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 even or even what you call it the um, the exposure what, what? exposure therapy exposure therapy. Yeah, that actually was uh, was landmarked from a Dr. Foa who's at Penn here, mm -hmm. um, who we've uh, been in talks with. Yeah. And, and I mean, yeah. again, the Penn community has been very supportive yeah. in large part. Yeah. Okay. Well, I didn't mean to drag everyone through the weeds on the FDA, but it, but it's, you know, the FDA, obviously super important regulatory agency. I'm very glad it exists. Um, but for an entrepreneur, it's it can be daunting. And, and But often, I guess the message for our listeners would be, often there is a short path that bypasses the scariest of the right. FDA processes, which are the things that are typically reserved for you know, drugs, things you're going to put in, in your body that are invasive right. that actually present risks to the to the to the consumer. Yeah. Uh, the same principle with the IRB as well. Yeah, I mean, I think you know, very interesting. Over the last year, year and a half of, of starting Neuroflow, 
there was always a different hurdle in front of us, like the FDA. Mm -hmm. And as an entrepreneur, Adam and I and our team had to negotiate around that and and figure just a way out. Otherwise, you know, it would have been given up and then going to work somewhere else. Yeah. All right, Chris, take me back to you had the idea, you'd kicked it around, you and Adam were working on it. Um, How did you get the first clinician to get interested? Because that seems like a really critical step. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so getting them to acknowledge that there's a problem here mm-hmm. uh, wasn't hard. Mm-hmm. Uh, getting them to acknowledge that we were an additive potential solution. Yeah, yeah. Uh, two was students a doing a project. Right, right, you want to yeah. you want to put it some <laughs> instruments on my patient? Yeah, right. One hundred percent right. <laughs> uh, so you know that was another hurdle, and yeah. I I think what resonated with them was was our personal story, our connection with it. And the promise that we're actually doing real research here and that we're serious about this. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the times we approached it first by just doing an investigational talk with them. Give us some feedback. Talk to us about your problems. And that's it. So it wasn't sales mode. It wasn't trying to get them to buy this. But then taking their feedback, building it, incorporating it in the product, and then getting to go back to them three or four months later and saying, Look what we did. Yeah. And uh, they were all very receptive. Yeah. So that's actually, I think, a generalizable principle. So don't go in immediately and say, will you pay me for a pilot? Right. Say, hey, hey, what do you, what do you think about what we're doing? We'd love to have mm-hmm. your feedback. And then show them. Show right. them you're, you're respectful of that feedback. I think that's a that's a great generalizable strategy. Yeah. yeah. And now uh, yeah, we're excited. CHOP is using us. Mm-hmm. Uh, neuroscience it continuing to use us. West Point, the military academy, uses us. So we've... Uh, you know, we've expanded since those early days. Yeah. All right. So I, I, we, you know, but we're still only here. We are in in I don't know. It's what six, seven months after graduation. So it's yeah. it's not that long after after graduation. You had a a great milestone. It looks like a, under a month ago, last month, you raised your your first financing, a million That's and a right. quarter mm-hmm. uh, dollars. Talk us through a little bit about the financing process. Oh boy, that's a, that's <laughs> probably a show in and of itself. But. Yeah, it's always hard, I know. But but uh, and and you're doing it in Philadelphia, which you know the the bad news is it. Well, let me frame it a different way. the The bulk of investment capital is definitely in Silicon Valley and for this kind of thing, and also in in New York, uh, and not so much uh, Philadelphia. Except that Philly's such a healthcare hub. And so you you did have I think somewhat of a a wedge there in terms yes, of being yeah. healthcare, but you're in Philly. You're raising capital. Talk us a little, through a little bit that process. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, right. So we probably started ra- trying to raise this time last year. So it took almost twelve months to yep. to close the round. But uh, Brett Topke, who's of Red and Blue Ventures, mm-hmm. gave me some great advice, and he said, "Look, investors like to invest in lines, not dots, and so continue to." show them progress over time and it better be upward progress. Yeah. And they'll, you know, they'll be interested to continue to maintain those relationships. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like the same story with with the clinicians. You 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 you, you yeah, start a, a point. you start a conversation, right, right. right? And you show them progress. Yeah. Yeah. And you develop that relationship over mm-hmm. time. I mean, it's it's a matter of trust in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Um so we in order to keep this afloat before raising the investment capital, won a total of $140,000 in business plan competitions. Yeah. Thanks in large part to Warren. Yeah. So a <laughs> big shout out 
to I guess it's my organization. So yeah, shout out I to myself. So. <laughs> <laughs> but but Chris, I will remind you, you did pay two hundred thousand bucks to get access to that. Uh, uh, thanks yeah. for reminding me. <laughs> <laughs> so you got some of your tuition, right. some of your tuition tuition back. Okay, so that actually more seriously. You know, I think we're in a in a, in a new era, really, of entrepreneurship in which credible, interesting, valuable ventures can be created by grad students uh, while they're in school or get started yeah. while they're in school. And there are amazing resources to oh, do it. Oh my God! Yeah, I, incredible. Yeah. So that's just to underscore it. Congratulations on that. That you know, 140 grand. I mean, that's that would normally have been the friends and family round, yeah, 100%. right? Yeah, yeah, coming on your credit card or. Or your your brother or something, right? right, right. Yeah. So well, yeah. so um, so you, so that was the first step. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that that fueled the fire to show the value and customer traction to the point that we got where investors felt more comfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, we continued to develop those relationships, and you know, asked for advice, not money necessarily a mm-hmm. lot of times. And we eventually had one investor uh, called Gap International. They're mm-hmm. a strategic consulting company west of Philly mm-hmm. that has an investment arm. And uh, one of their managing partners is a vet, too. Mm. So I think he resonated with our mission and believed in the team and uh, signed the first term sheet for mm-hmm. uh, for 250000 mm-hmm. And soon after that, we got a lot more traction. Uh, Wayne Tamarelli, who's now our director, um, leads up or is a leader of the uh, New Jersey Jumpstart Angel Group. Mm-hmm. Uh, he brought in a few of his fellow investors. Mm-hmm. And then to round out the round... We had um, Ben Franklin Technology Partners mm-hmm. in the Digital Health Fund, mm-hmm. with uh, partnered with Safeguard Scientific and IBX, yep. come in, and that made the 1.25. Yeah. What's interesting is the Ben Franklin. Seven months earlier in January, I asked them for fifty thousand in their uh, TAF loan, and they said no. Yeah. And then they just wrote this. Well, you good. So. <laughs> you you were persistent, and they were connecting the dots. So they that uh, that's a good story. So I, I, let me just underscore, I think, some key principles about the financing. It's a, a million dollars, a million and a half dollars, actually a a hard number because it's it's a little too small for a VC fund to do, uh, and it's a little too big for angels to mm-hmm. do. But your strategy was a good one. So you you found a lead. And right. that's really important. So the lead is the one with whom you really negotiate the terms. Right. And then you circle back on the other 40 people you talk to and you say, I got 140 people. <laughs> 140. <laughs> <laughs> really? Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you it's circle kind of back. a badge of honor now. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You circle back on that. I want everyone, I'm going to say it again. You circle back on the 140 other people you talk to. Yeah. And uh, and four of them are in, and then you're then you're then you're off to the races. So right. so uh, that's that's a more typical than not story. Mm-hmm. So a very normal story, but it doesn't make it any any less less painful. I wonder if you could say so. You see, this has got to be on the one hand, you know, huge relief to have a few bucks in the bank, and 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 now to actually have some resources to get some things done. How have you prioritized what those things are? And what are the big three or big four things you got to get done? Great question. So I I constantly remind myself and the team that raising this round is a big milestone, but it's a means to an end. So it's not the goal. It's not we haven't really accomplished anything. Right. Uh, So this is fuel to the fire now. And so we've raised, uh, sorry, we uh, hired two more people, Mm -hmm. software engineer from Lockheed Martin. Uh, I mean, attracting that type of talent, which is awesome and exciting. Right. And then marketing and sales, really, it's an education. It's educating the market that this solution is out there. One of the neat things is I consider ourselves 
a tech and data company more so than a healthcare company. Yeah. I mean, we're being used by the U.S. Olympic Training Center for mm-hmm. their athletes, um, by the military at West Point for training, uh, by some corporate wellness uh, initiatives uh, to measure, you know, general wellness uh, for mm-hmm. performance and, and so forth. So um, it's about scaling it up now and, uh, and building real value. All right. I want to I want to change directions just here a little bit. And you have a you have very interesting background. So you went to uh, West Point and then yes, were sir. in active duty military. So uh, walk us through a little bit your experience in the military and then speak a little bit to that transition to being to going to business school and then being an entrepreneur. Yeah, I think uh, so. West Point was a phenomenal place to go to school. Yeah, I don't know if you always thought that when you were a cadet, but <laughs> looking back on it, yeah, um, taught you first how to follow, and then how to lead. Yeah, um, and then when you know I was 22, I led 40 soldiers of platoon uh, to combat in Iraq, uh, which was a quite a unique experience. Yeah, uh, it was an honor, frankly. Yeah, um, and you walked away from that knowing that you could walk out. Of, walk away from that, solve huge problems, sometimes in very bad situations, mm-hmm. and you did it in a team effort. Yeah. Um, so that, to me, is a lot of what entrepreneurship is. Right? Yeah, it's like, wow, okay, if I can do that, I can cold call 140 investors. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So when I, when I was still, when I was a captain in the Army, I, with a colleague of mine, Garrison Hanning, we co-founded a nonprofit to support our soldiers. Mm. So there was a little bit of entrepreneurial there. Mm-hmm. But I realized I didn't have the business acumen background, um, which brought me to Wharton. Mm-hmm. And I remind my team every day, you know, I walk in, um, Adam Pardis, Sam DeLucia, who's our product manager, uh, Chris Oaks, our lead developer. Mm-hmm. We're, you know, this is our own war zone, our own battle. Mm-hmm. And we have to figure out a way. And we got great men and women to our left and right in the office. Mm-hmm. And we'll figure it out. Yeah. When, when, do you, when you came to Wharton, did you think you might want to be an entrepreneur? Or was that, and I, I think, if I remember your bio right, you did a, an internship at McKinsey. So you tried you tried working for the man, for <laughs> sure. Yeah, yeah. McKinsey's a great firm. McKinsey's I mean, I just, the, just, just the military uh, in the consulting world, right? Yeah. Not well, quite. I don't know about that. Yeah, but yeah. The, the, <laughs> I, I knew that I wanted to do something that created impact, yeah, whether that was yeah. starting my own thing or joining a firm like McKinsey yeah. um, to do something where, you know, it was bigger than you every day. Mm-hmm. Um, and McKinsey was a great learning experience. Yeah. I hold nothing against the firm. Right. I, I, I'm actually an advocate for it. I've yeah. helped friends, you know, uh, recruit for it yeah. and interview and Absolutely. so forth. Yeah. Um, but it, you know, we did that initial research on Neuroflow and it led us down this road and mm-hmm. have, haven't looked back. Yeah. So it, it's interesting because some people are somewhat agnostic about whatever the venture they do. They just want to do a venture. And some people are more about, Hey, I want to have purpose. I want to mm-hmm. do something bigger than me. Right. And if I do it at McKinsey, that's that's fine. If I do it on my own, that's another. And you're more the latter. You were more thinking, this is a great opportunity, and it happens to be an entrepreneurial opportunity. Right. Yeah. I mean, the market opportunity is there. The opportunity to make money is there. But my dad taught me, you know, you can you do something for the right reason to do good, and the money will follow. All right. Well, on that note, Chris, thanks so much for coming in and and sharing the story. Thank you for having me. All right, for more information about Neuroflow, neuroflowsolution.com. I'm Carl Ulrich, Vice Dean of Entrepreneurship and Innovation at Wharton. Launchpad is produced by Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, on Sirius XM, Channel 111. 
The show airs live on Wednesdays from 7 to 9 p.m. You can find more episodes of this podcast on SoundCloud or on iTunes.